Slava Isusu Christu. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to today's very special episode in our study series, The Catechism in a Year, the Ukrainian Catholic Catechism in Less Than a Year. Today we have a very special guest, Father David Petrus, on, and he is going to walk us all through a brief introduction to the discussion of what is Eastern Christian worship. We're going to focus around five questions or so as topic discussion points, but let's ask a little bit about who is Father David Petrus. He is a uh, Ruthenian Rite Byzantine Catholic priest, was a seminarian uh, and student in Rome back during the end of the Second Vatican Council. He was ordained in 1967, and shortly after that, in uh, 19. 70 obtained his uh, doctorate in uh, Eastern Church Studies. He served in various capacities in the Northeast United States, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, as a Byzantine Catholic priest for uh, almost three decades uh, before finally transitioning to teaching as a full-time seminary professor at my alma mater, Byzantine Catholic Seminary. He taught there for uh, almost two decades full-time, before retiring, and uh, in his almost decade of retirement now, uh, still continues as an adjunct professor. I've been very honored to have him in courses from as basic to the nature um, and study of Eastern Christian sacraments and worship to advanced courses on uh, liturgical reform and liturgical development in the history of uh, the usages of the Byzantine liturgy. So he is an excellent person, a very great personality. I was very proud to have him as a professor and not only as a professor, but primary advisor on my capstone research. But uh, without further ado, let us go ahead and have him on the show. Father David, uh, would you mind telling us just a little bit about uh, yourself and your background, uh, telling our listeners? Um, Well, yes, I am a... um what a dying breed, which is a cradle Byzantine, born in the Byzantine Church. And matter of fact, in 1941, uh, I was in Cleveland, Ohio. Was baptized in St. Joseph's Church in Cleveland, Ohio. I felt from young age a call to the priesthood, so I entered the Byzantine Seminary in 1959. I studied there, and then I studied in in Rome at the Gregorian University. I was ordained a priest in 1967 and then went on to receive a doctorate in uh, liturgy from the Pontifical Oriental Institute. Uh, in, in my career, I have served in parishes. Uh, I've been a priest 55 years. Uh, 10 of these have been retired, 23 are in a parish and another 22 in the seminary. So that's been mostly my my career. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, I was very honored to have you as a professor and uh, a mentor and advisor on my capstone research in uh, Eastern um, Principles of Liturgical Reform. And one of the things I wanted to kind of set out for our Catechism in a Year series is um, to look at these five discussion questions or so to introduce both um, Catholics, Latin Catholics and Eastern, and non-Catholics into this this great question of, you know, what is the spirit of Eastern Christian worship? And what is this foretaste of worship that, you know, we're going to dig into more in the study of Christ Arpaska's Catechism? And the, the first question that I wanted to kind of look at is, you know, what is liturgical piety uh, and why is it the focus of our Eastern spiritual life? What are your thoughts on on explaining that a little bit to people not so familiar with our tradition? Yes, the very first thing I noticed was the is the word piety, and I can I can understand that I think because certainly no one of us wants to be impious, and for me I would define piety as simply having a right relationship with the creator we are the creature and god is the creator so everything that we have and everything that we are 
we owe to the creation of God. I remember once Father Taft was one of my associates in the study of liturgy. Father Taft is Father Robert Taft is very well known as one of the most foremost foremost of Byzantine liturgists. Mm-hmm. And he was once asked a question, what do we what do we get out of the liturgy? And I always remember his answer was, what we get is the tremendous honor of being able to to worship our Creator. This is what we get out of the liturgy. But I think piety also can have a kind of a negative note because sometimes people equate piety with external actions and ways of of uh, of serving the liturgy that tends to justify themselves. So they they act very reverently and in a way they feel that this justifies themselves. I would rather call it a liturgical attitude. What is our liturgical attitude? Or habit uh, because mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, attitude is in habit of thinking? Uh, way of thinking, I would say, a way of thinking. I'm thinking of um, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians when he said, you have to have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not think divinity something to be grasped at, but he humbled himself, becoming a, a servant even to the point of death, and he says, even to the point of death on the cross. So uh, this, I think this is our liturgical attitude. This is our liturgical way of thinking. This is, this is really our liturgical piety. If we can come in and humble ourselves or empty ourselves in order to be filled with, filled with God's grace, um, We call this, I think, the the Paschal mystery or the Passover mystery, mm-hmm. because uh, when Christ saved us, as a, as it were, he was obedient to the Father and accepted death on the cross. So that, that again, as in Philippians, Saint Paul says, when he accepted death on the cross, he was exalted above every other name. And as we well know, it appears very often in this in the scriptures. Our Lord says, "He who humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled." Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the liturgy truly is a remembrance of the cross event, which is also a remembrance of the resurrection event. These two go together. It's the it's the Paschal mystery, and we have to see that. Uh, in some way or shape or form uh, enacted in our own lives. Uh, Certainly we're not going to be crucified on a cross like they did in the Roman days, but there has to be some particular way for each of us individually that we empty ourselves so that we can be filled with Christ. Mm -hmm. And that really is what the liturgy is all about. And this emptying of ourselves and being filled with Christ, of course, then is deification. I think this is very real. Because if we do attend the liturgy with with an open heart, we are in fact transformed. And in fact, the community becomes something different than it was before. Uh, So we call it a divine liturgy. Because in it, the the power the power that comes from our Lord's uh, condescension and His resurrection is able to transform our lives now, and that's the real way in which the mystery of the cross and the resurrection is, let's say, represented today, represented. And it happens in the community in which we serve. 
Now you're you're talking a lot about the focus on community, and from the the kind of nominal Protestant background that I was raised in, although I um, delved into atheism very quickly, um, this notion of uh, the communal nature of Christianity uh, is kind of absent in some Christian circles. It's a, a very individualistic. And as I eventually became Catholic and my first encounter with uh, Eastern Catholicism now um, almost 15 years ago, one, one of the questions that I want to lead into now is, uh, is this liturgical piety, is this common, this corporate life, this mystical life that participates in the, the Passover celebrated um, in memory of him, is this common to East and West? Because um, some people would say that the East has, has had this and it's, it's more Eastern than Western but I think the Eastern Catholic and Orthodox and the, the Western Catholic do have a common history in this very liturgical worship and this liturgical attitude. Um, would, you, would you care to, to elaborate on that? Is, is this a common heritage we have both East and West here? Uh, yeah. Time? Are you going into the, like, the second point now? Uh, yeah, this, the second question, you know, um, is there a common spiritual heritage here um, that the East and West are coming closer to now more in the past century. Yeah, I, I would say, of course, there is a common liturgical attitude. If you want a common liturgical piety that is common to all Christians, but to a greater or lesser degree, depending on uh, which part of Christianity you find yourself in, um, Certainly, I think both the Western Catholics and the Eastern Catholics have a strong sense of the liturgy as the solemn commemoration, the real commemoration of the death of our Lord on the cross and his resurrection. Mm -hmm. For which reason, I think both the Western Latin Church and the Eastern Byzantine Church have such an emphasis on the fact that the bread and wine become the real essential body and blood of Christ in, in, a, in a form of what the West calls transubstantiation, mm -hmm. which the East believes certainly to the same degree. So I think that when you look at the Western and Eastern liturgy, in reality there, uh, well, I would say, almost 80-90% the same mm -hmm. but there has be, there has become a different attitude, a way of going about it a way of piety uh, certainly for historical reasons that would really require a separate course sure. the, uh, the, the West in the later Middle Ages began to have a piety centered more around the cross of our Lord. Mm -hmm. I, I'll give you a couple of examples. Please, please. Uh, I met a priest once, and he just went through all kinds of images, icons, words, and he found the cross everywhere. Everything was about the cross. Uh and I, I, when I was a pastor in, in Detroit, Michigan, I had a, a woman come to me once. And she said, I found this very beautiful prayer in Slovak. She said, Father, maybe you would like to uh, read it and maybe translate it. So I did take the prayer, and it was about a page long. And it was all about the suffering of Jesus which was spelled out in the physical way in almost very gruesome tones. Uh, she found it beautiful, I think, because it, it was a kind of a, a witness to how much our Lord suffered for our sake. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the, by the same token, I would say up until in my early days, just before the Vatican Council and so forth, this was the predominant piety 
in, in the Western Church. It was very much a focus on the cross and on the suffering of our Lord. Uh, and this this uh, came into the East to some degree. I mean, there's no problem. I mean, certainly we venerate the cross of our Lord. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the Christian message that our Lord suffered and died for us. But by the same token, they focusing very much on the reality of the suffering doesn't help that much. Because after all, I've often said, thousands of people in the Roman Empire died by crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But only one crucifixion was salvific, and that was our Lord's. And that was because, of course, of the mind that he had in, in, in suffering. So it is not the particular gruesome physical details that save us. Mm-hmm. It is the, the love that is manifested in, in the cross that saves us, and that, in fact, brings us to the resurrection. So anyhow, to return to my, to my point, I, I was aware of that very much in the Western Church, was a kind of focus on the, the cross and the death of our Lord. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that there wasn't an idea of the resurrection. There certainly was. Uh, I remember a very influential book when I was young was Francis Durwell's book on the resurrection, which uh, looked at the theology of the resurrection from a strictly Western point of view. But the in the East, there was never this, <clears throat> I would say, gruesome reflection on the suffering of our Lord. And the the resurrection was much more prominent in the in the piety of the church. Mm-hmm. One needs only to look at the um, celebration of Easter of Pascha in the Eastern Church, and of the explosion of joy that comes from the celebration of the resurrection to see that the Eastern Church just dwelt more on and reflected more on the resurrection than in the in the Western Church. Uh, I think part of the reason of the Vatican Council was to rediscover the riches of the East and to try to recover some of some of that focus of the East on the glorification that comes from the from the death on the cross, the glorification that comes from humiliation, the second part of our Lord's uh observation is that whoever humbles himself will be exalted mm-hmm. and it was a kind of a rediscovery of, of the of the power of the resurrection in the liturgy as opposed to the cross although all they, these always must remain always in balance and it helps to explain the nature of human life now you you had mentioned that time period of the second Vatican Council and I know you had shared with me um, you know privately before, um, of one of the other aspects of this liturgical movement um, that really culminated at Vatican II uh, in the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, and this this re- I wouldn't say return, but this this reemphasis or this restoration that all Christians, East and West, should really be drawing their their piety, their nourishment, their spirit, their focus from the full liturgical life of the church um, as the the meat and potatoes, so to speak, compared yeah. to uh, a very heavy basis in devotions, uh, which are um, like other food categories or desserts. They're an integral part, um, but the source and summit, obviously, is, is the divine liturgy, and that lived throughout the day with the, the liturgy of the hours. Do you, do you recall that time period? Um, before entering the priesthood, uh, growing up in the fifties and sixties, of this, any notable differences in um, piety, so to speak, between the Eastern and Western churches that you think have been healed uh, in the past sixty or seventy years that have come closer? Yeah, that was a that's a very interesting question, and to be honest, I've had a, a lot of experience about that. Of course, being in my eighties now, uh, I think. 
dealing with the community now, you have to be an old person to remember the council. Mm -hmm. It's it's over 60 years ago. So for many of the younger people, it's simply, as we say, a historical fact, Mm -hmm. but not an experience for them. I think for us, it was very much an experience. Uh, the console, I think, I really, I'm very enthusiastic about the console. I'm a very great devotee of the console. It was really a wondrous event. Uh, the console helped to change a lot of a lot of attitudes that that we had. Uh, and I remember I went to, I went to Roman Catholic schools, both in the grade school and in the high school. So this was before the council. So I attended, uh, the, the Roman mass many times, of course, as a student. And even then as a young student, very immature, only an adolescent not knowing very much about anything, I I realized that there there seems to be something wrong about this because we would go into the liturgy and the priest would be standing at the altar and he would go go through the mass, whispering all his prayers. The people would be in the pews. We followed along in our St. Joseph's Missal, which has the Latin on the left and the English on the right. Uh, we would we would follow along with what he was saying, and others just were praying their rosary. So in the in the Roman Church, I think there was not a huge participation in the liturgy, and if you'll notice, that I think was the guiding principle of the liturgy reform of the Roman Church was to make the people participate in the liturgy more. Or, you know, create a spirit of participation. And and that transition from us all being individuals saying our individ saying our prayers to our Lord individually to yes. us all now as individuals saying a communal prayer, which was yeah. always the church's worship. Um yeah. that transition is more from the I think there was a Vatican document um in the past decade on um the popular piety in the liturgy that talked about this devotional or individualistic mindset where you're, you're part, you're, you're basically a member in a crowd, but you're not acting as a community. And this transition away from that individualistic mindset to where we all become one body, we all pray, stand and, and join as the bride of Christ. That is that, you know, um, liturgical piety that really is, very prominent and and often very um, very intact in the East that the West has kind of recovered. Would, would that be pretty accurate to say now that the West is definitely yeah? Well, what East what they what they tried to recover, you know, it, it's it's difficult on the very practical level mm-hmm. to implement a lot of these things. And the the idea the ideal of the Vatican Council was was tremendous, and I think it has had a very beneficial effect on the church. But by the same token, of course, mm-hmm. uh, trying to make people participate more actively led to some very strange practices on the local level in the Roman church. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think sometimes these, these strange practices that turn people off mm-hmm. from the consul, but this was not the ideal of the consul. Sure. Uh, the ideal was to, foster a genuine spirit of participation in the liturgy. I had a, I had a very close friend. He was a priest in the Rockville Center Diocese in Long Island. And I visited him once and went to his Sunday liturgy, which was celebrated strictly according to the Vatican II principles. And it was, it was very beautiful. It was one of the most spiritual uh, experiences I had in my life. I, I really 
you know, I, I felt I felt very good after that. But of course, on the on the other hand, a lot of people just didn't know how to implement it, and you did have a lot of very strange practices. Uh, like we could do, we could take an hour on going over oh, some of these. Sure, <laughs> but, sure. So, so for but those... of course, in the, in the Eastern Church, the, the there was not the same problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to. Uh, kind of caution here because certainly in the great Russian Orthodox Church and the Greek Orthodox Church there also is not a lot of congregational participation. I've seen that. Mostly it's between the priest and the choir. I have actually, I've seen that myself um, in in visiting um, Orthodox parishes where uh, I joked with uh, Dr. Matthew Minard one time I said, you know, my we've we've visited uh, Latin mass parishes, we've visited Orthodox parishes, we've visited various Eastern Catholic churches, and um, Matthew and I both made the comment. And I said, in pretty much every parish we go, I'm one of the loudest singing ones there, and it's otherwise sometimes very yes. quiet. Yes, and that is true. But you know, it was not true of our of the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church. There was in our church. We did have a really active participation, mm-hmm. and everybody sang. It was just you know, it was just no problem. So I think what happened in the Vatican Council is that they there was a different program for the Eastern Eastern Catholic Church because they were not legislating for the Orthodox, and for the um, Roman Church, the Roman the, the program for the Roman Church was to Increased participation. That was the main thing. Mm-hmm. But for the Byzantine Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, it was to return to our ancestral customs mm-hmm. because the church had had adapted so many, uh, let's say, trappings of Roman piety that sometimes it was almost irrecognizable. Mm-hmm. If we could go into that that third talking point, um, for those that uh, are not familiar so much with our Eastern services, uh, what are the major parish um, services? That, you know, just maybe in a couple of sentences each. If you were explaining to somebody coming in off the street, you know, who wanted to, you know, well, what are the different liturgies? What are the different uh, vespers? The akathis? What what is this community piety? What yeah. is what is the character of Eastern Christian worship? Could you give us a couple introductions to those those various? Yeah, I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to emphasize a little bit about what happened in our church before and after the Vatican Council. So before the Vatican Council in our church, certainly the main service was always the Divine Liturgy, mm-hmm. which Romans would call the Eucharist the Mass, mm-hmm. or the liturgy. Uh, in many parishes, that was the only service that was ever celebrated. Mm-hmm. That was before the Vatican Council. And in a, in a way, this is proper because the the Divine Liturgy or the Eucharist is certainly the, the high point of the liturgical life of the, of the Christian, and it has to be an essential part of of the uh, of the liturgy of the church, and especially on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But after the council, there was a, I would say, a return try to bring out more of the uh, riches of the Eastern Church. Um, one thing that our church did develop, and this happened by the, this has happened by the way, also some some degree in the Orthodox Church was the idea of not having the liturgy always in the morning, but mm-hmm. sometimes in the evening so that people could attend. Vigil services, so, which were, yeah, those were yeah. Um, quite common back in, in the early medieval um, and era of the, the fathers right after uh, Nicaea as well. And do you know um, when those kind of faded away in the East, when the, the observation of vigils passed away in the East? Yeah, this I really can't explain. I have to do some research on that. But certainly, over the centuries, certainly well into the second millennium, mm-hmm. 
the liturgy became simply a morning thing. Okay. The lit- Eucharist is always in the morning. Okay. And this even happened in the very traditional services we have on Holy Thursday and on the eves of Christmas and Theophany mm-hmm. and on the eve of Pascha, where you where the liturgy is essentially combined with Vespers, mm-hmm. showing that it definitely was an evening service. Uh, and what happened was they every every divine liturgy, even even the Vespers itself, was transferred to the morning. Interesting. Um, so uh, after the Vatican Council, there was again a kind of a realization that well. Often people are more available in the evening than in the morning, and evening liturgies uh, became more common. Different in the different beginning. Work, different work culture this century than yes, centuries. Past. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, what we would do, what happened originally was on on Sundays, not so much because Sundays people are usually free in the morning, but on holy days the liturgy became in the evening, and the original practice was to put an evening liturgy on the day of the feast itself. But then some people began to realize, well, in the Eastern Church, the day goes from sunset to sunset. Mm-hmm. Just like so the Jewish calendar. The, yep. Yes. So that the day would begin with the sunset on the eve before. Uh, this especially affected Saturday evening liturgies. Mm-hmm. And it was applied also to the um, uh, the feast days, and since it was in the evening, the priests saw this as an opportunity to reintroduce the people to the idea of vespers, mm-hmm. or great, and, great vespers, which would be this our Saturday night service. Now, didn't um, didn't Father Robert Taft? Uh, I remember reading either an article or something that he had said, talking about. Uh, up until the the later years, right before his passing a few years ago, where he had talked about just this this great importance of um, Saturday night great vespers as really setting the tone for all of Sunday. Um, and do you do you ever recall coming across the the article that talked about that um, his experience with that as he uh, aged in his priesthood? It could be. I can't think of anything right off hand. Of course, I know that. Father Taft was uh, celebrated, or, or you know, was a, was a great proponent of the celebration of vespers. And as a matter of fact, the the whole idea of reinstating the divine praises as a part of our liturgical life mm-hmm. has been a central part of the um, Byzantine reform after the Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened? What happened in this? of course, and still happening in Orthodox parishes, is that they would just have the Vespers itself without the Eucharistic liturgy on Saturday evening. Uh, and in in the Slav churches, mostly, they combine it with, with Matins to have a, uh, what they would call an all-night vigil uh, on the on the eve of the, of the day after sunset, and then the Divine Liturgy itself on Sunday itself. So, so what happened in our church, of course, because people were uh, devoted to the Eucharist, they would they would combine the Vespers and the Divine Liturgy on Saturday evening, following the model of the um, the Holy Saturday Paschal Vigil. Now that that's interesting because I have actually seen uh, Melkite Greek Catholic parishes uh, that are very adamant about only having. Uh, great Vespers on Saturday night. And I, I recall um, both as an undergrad and then later studying at a Byzantine Catholic Seminary um, with you and my own research that uh, Vatican II does even talk about uh, some of the Eastern traditions um, viewing that a participation in Great Vespers on Saturday night fulfills one, can fulfill one's obligation depending upon which particular Eastern church um, allows this or not, because they view it as such an integral part of of the celebration of the Passover. Yeah, I think we we get involved sometimes in the, in the legalistic aspects mm-hmm. of it, 
you know, namely, what is the obligation and what must we do to to uh, fulfill the obligation. Of course, the ideal, the ideal obviously would be you'd go on in the evening after sunset on Saturday mm-hmm. and attend Vespers and celebrate Vespers together as a community, then return again on Sunday morning and celebrate the Divine Liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully also including in their matins. Uh, some some par- some of our parishes, but only a, a small percentage uh, do do matins on Sunday morning. Some some do. Here in St. Stephen's in Phoenix, uh, they have matins every other Sunday. And that's celebrated before the Divine Liturgy. And it's celebrated well before the Divine Liturgy for a very simple practical reason. That's the only time they can get a canner for matins. <laughs> so... Now, one of the other unique um, elements of Eastern Christian worship in our, our calendar, although it's not completely unique, I think the Latin West had it on their Good Friday services, is the um, the Liturgy of the Presanctified, which is a, a liturgical service basically without the uh, without the Eucharistic prayer or without the anaphora, but with a communion service offered. Uh, would you mind... Um, kind of, you know, explaining in you know a few sentences this attitude or this why this is such a big part of our Eastern heritage, especially during Lent. What is the the meaning of this? Yeah, the pre-sanctified liturgy, of course, is a very, very interesting phenomenon, and this I think is certainly a sign of the Eucharist being combined with the with the with an evening service. This was so all during the Great Fast. It should be noted, by the way, that pre-scientified liturgy does not have an anaphora, mm-hmm. but it is still called a divine liturgy in the official text. I think it's because it does participate in the in the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection, <coughs> not by the recitation of the anaphora. They would... Um, abstain from the anaphora because the anaphora is very specifically the commemoration of the resurrection and you abstain from the resurrection until uh, the feast of the resurrection of our Lord on Pascha. Mm-hmm. Um, the exact opposite happened in the Roman church. They they insisted on the celebration of the of the mass of the divine liturgy all, all during the great fast. As a, in other words, receiving communion as a part of the journey through the great fast as a, as a kind of a manifestation of the manna in the desert. Although, by the way, I'm writing, I'm writing a book now. I hope to, to finish it, um, a kind of a commentary on the pre-sanctified because I think it's very important in the Byzantine church. It's interesting you say that because I've, I've actually seen, um, very, uh, very reverent uh, reformed liturgy, the Novus Ordo um, parishes that will have communion services only on a Good Friday, where they will not offer the mass. They will just have a communion service on Good Friday. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there's that same spirit. It's just, and at least in some of the, the Latin parishes, it's restricted just to Good Friday, whereas the East tries to expand that out. And I guess uh, if I were to explain that to uh, to my either Protestant or, or Latin Catholic friends, I would say it's just like what St. Paul talks about with with marriage. And, you know, the idea that you're not doing harm to your marriage um, by uh, endeavoring on some you know, liturgical fasting or some nuptial fasting, uh, so to speak, if one's able. Yeah. I think even Augustine, I'll, I'll get into this in the, the Catechism in a Year series when we cover this in the Catechism, but I think even uh, the late Pope Benedict XVI gave some conferences back in the 80s on St. Augustine, who himself uh, placed himself under a Eucharistic fast uh, towards the end of his life because he said he, uh, I'm paraphrasing, he said he wanted to experience um, the longing that the heathens did for this desire for God. He wanted to approach death's door with this this hunger. And it was interesting that uh, at the time Cardinal Ratzinger Later, Pope Benedict, now uh, deceased, uh, Pope, Emer- uh, Pope Benedict uh, Emeritus, 
uh, had talked about this idea of Eucharistic fasting that was also present in some uh, some Latin writers. Um, going into this fourth question, uh, what um, what are the octo echoes? That's a, a special term that describes our eight terms, uh, our eight tones in the East. And um, why would you say is our worship always sung? Why why is there really no such thing as a low mass or a said mass in the Eastern churches? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to answer two questions because I'm going to follow up a little bit please, on please. the pre-sanctified because in the Byzantine church, due to monastic practice, uh, the pre-sanctified is done only on Wednesday and Friday. Mm-hmm. But in the parish churches originally, it was done every day of the great fast. It was like our, our daily food during the journey of the great fast. Uh, and it was celebrated in the evening. It was specifically because of fasting. In the fast, you, you fasted during the day, and you didn't eat until the evening. Mm-hmm. So you celebrate the Eucharist in the evening, and then you would you would eat something. So that's that's why it, the pre-sanctified eventually uh, was attached only to the uh, to the evening service. I just have to add that Please extra thing you. there. Yeah, and also the Byzantines, by the way, originally up until the 12th century, also had the pre-sanctified on Good Friday. Although now the, the the communion is simply not given on the, in the Byzantine Church, uh, I, I, I think there are reasons for that. I think it was because of the um, introduction of the uh, great uh, procession we have with the shroud on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, now I'm going to return to your question about the eight tones. Uh, that's an interesting point. First of all, it has to do with music. And to be honest, I don't understand music. <laughs> that's 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 the weakness that I have. But it appears that in the in the ancient Greek um, culture, there were eight different tones, uh, eight different basic melodies that existed. Mm-hmm. And this was then uh, transposed into the liturgical music of the Eastern Church. Uh, the eight tones are originally actually from Syria, and they were imported back into Constantinople. Uh, they had two different kinds of tones. The uh, There were actually four tones tones one, two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. And then there were the plagal tones, which were the first, second, uh, the third, which was called an acute, and the fourth plagal tone. And they're still numbered that way by the Greeks, but Slavs just numbered them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. So there are eight tones, and all of the music in the in the Byzantine church is then reorganized according to these eight tones. In reality, there's actually about 64 different melodies, basic melodies, because each of the tones has a different melody for a troparian, a different melody for a kontakian, a different melody for a stichira, and so forth. So there there are many different musical variations. But it, it appears to have come from the ancient Greek secular practice of and of, the of music. If, I'm, if I may ask real quick, so for for those of us that are for, for those listeners that are not familiar with Traparia or Kontakian or uh, Stikaria, that is similar to the we, we would use the layman's terms like changeable parts, or similar to what those in the Latin church yes. would know as the propers, whether that would be the gradual or the secret or the various changeable parts appropriate to. Uh, the mass or the worship um, service for that specific yeah. feast. Okay. Yeah, we also use the Western terminology and call those propers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many different kinds of propers. The Byzantine Church, of course, has a huge repertoire of of hymns, much more so than, than the Roman Church. Um, although about seventy five percent of the hymnology of the Eastern Church is in the canons of Matins, mm-hmm. but uh, which again have their own proper melody. Uh, 
in Irmosi and in the Troparia, the canons and so forth. But um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know some some people like to say, "Well, you're just there's just the Eastern Church," and uh, the Ruthenian Church has its own nuanced musical differences from our Ukrainian Church, which has its own melodic nuanced differences from the Melkite, all of which follow the the Greek Catholic or the Byzantine tradition, but have their differences. But um, even in these, would you say that? Uh, in simple terms, the the melodies of the Eastern Church, they're not as intricately tied down into um, the language as they were in the Latin Church. Because I know, for instance, as like with, with Gregorian chant, the melodies of the Latin Church from um, in the Latin Mass or even in the Latin Novus Ordo, going back to time immemorial, are, are almost dependent upon the vowels of the Latin language, whereas many of our Eastern song, um, whether it's in Slavonic or Greek or Ukrainian or Arabic, the melodies tend to carry over far more easy. The music tends to carry over far more easy in translation. Would would you concur with that, or could you comment on that? Yeah, they, I, I, would say, I would say this, the... Certainly the original Greek texts were closely tied to the music because the music had a system of accentuation. Mm-hmm. And when the hymns were written in Greek, they attempt, they not attempted, but they, they did adapt the text to follow the accentuation of the music. Mm-hmm. Of course, what happens is this is, of course, the Eastern practice of the of using the vernacular rather than simply the original Greek. When the liturgy goes into Romanian, or it goes into Slavonic, or it goes into Arabic, you have to translate the the words of the text to fit the melody. But the words of the text do not necessarily follow the accentuation mm-hmm. in the in the in the different languages. So you have to you have to make some adaptations. Uh, which, which and I, certainly in each each of the branches of the Byzantine Church, they all develop their own system of music. Which I think was one and, of, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. No, I was just saying that we of course we translate now our all our text into English, and English is one of the most difficult languages for accentuation in, because there's there's not a uh, you know, accents can appear all over the place. Yeah. And so which person's English? Is it, you know, like South Wales English or is it Australian English? Or, English. or is it Canadian English or is it South Alabama English? Because they're or Jersey, you know. Um, exactly. I, I, I was going to comment. I think one of the interesting things that I've discussed with my friends that are, um, you know, fans of the Latin Mass or critics of the Latin Mass, and I say, you know, for me, um, you know, as an Eastern Catholic, I, I just thought it was, um, for all of the, the interesting things of the West, uh, that have gone on with liturgical reform and some of the excesses and, um, that you had mentioned. But I, I think one of the interesting things that the West has done recently is I believe the, he's a, uh, father Samuel Weber, maybe I'm misquoting him, but there's a finally, um, you know, decades after Vatican II, where they have, um, there has been a, a movement for um, Gregorian melody for the English text of the Novus Ordo because of this this notion of that you can even if it takes a lot of effort try to preserve the musical tradition um, and that can still linger on in translation, which the East has always, as you had mentioned, always been able to to struggle through the the difficulty. Yes. Of course, when we first put things into English, very often they would ignore the accentuation and you had some pretty awful music. Mm-hmm. But I think recently, at least in the last 20 years, we've been struggling to make sure that when the music is is uh, written, that it does match the accentuation. And like as you as you mentioned, for English, that's a very difficult process because the English accents go all over the, all over the place. <laughs> now, um, kind of moving on to our, our, our fifth and you know final discussion topic here to kind of wrap up this 
you know, um, hour or so introduction to, to Eastern worship for our study series. Uh, what is Latinization and what is the Eastern liturgical renewal that was talked about at Vatican II? Yeah, there was there was a Latinization, and this, of course, comes only from the um, the Eastern churches that were Orthodox and reunited with the Roman Catholic Church. It should be noted that when these reunions were made, most of them in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. That when these reunions were made, the Eastern Church emphasized that they wanted to retain their own liturgical customs. And you're talking about uh, the, the the Union of Brest, um, yes, and Userod, um, yes, especially in you know in the Ukrainian and yeah. um, Slavic, um, yes, exactly, Slavic churches, exactly. But one must try. It, it's difficult to go back to the mentality of the times. Uh, the mentality of the times, of course, today we would see, yes, the Christian church, the Christian liturgy is has a great diversity. You could have Eastern and Western and so forth. Uh, but in, in those days, there was not a, a sense of diversity. Mm-hmm. You either had to be one or the other all the way or nothing. Um, and the- so what happened was these churches, did they did make a union. They did have as the um, as a keystone of the union that they would retain their own liturgical rights, mm-hmm. but they also existed in a time in which the Western Western European culture was becoming dominant in the world because of its advances, of its learning, its knowledge, and the Eastern people did feel that they were. They had an inferior mm. church, and so they they themselves wanted to imitate the Roman Church so that uh, they would it would uplift them into a higher cultural standing. And I think this is this is this is what the basis of the Latinization is. Um, it happened, for example, in the churches of the Union of Brest. The very first Latinization that was introduced was the liturgy that was read and not sung, mm-hmm. and they saw that, of course, in the in Roman Tridentine liturgy, there was no singing at all. Which is so there was a low mass and a high mass, so they they just they tended then simply to recite the liturgy, recite the liturgy rather than sing it. Which is and in. Very, yeah. very interesting because um, with um, with studying as, as an undergrad and in my own personal research with studying the history of, of the Latin liturgy, the 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 origins in the medieval period of low mass was actually the monastic community, and I think uh, one of the primary factors for its development was because the West never allowed concelebration, so you would have a monastic community of. 30 or 40 priests and they would have their conventual liturgy and all of the rest of the priests would want to under uh, um, uh, a merit theology uh, rooted in, 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 in some scriptural principles would want to offer their own um, sacrifice. Uh, whereas in the East, I don't think that tension ever happened that, um, with as far as the low mass developing and then tran- trans um transplanting after the Reformation period by the by the Jesuits and, and Ignatius's adamance about not being bound to uh, public office and uh, the uh, public celebration of the Liturgy of the Hours in the Society of Jesus's evangelization efforts. Uh, but please, uh, please go back uh, a little bit more into that with the East. And yeah, the that is, that is true. I mean, we, <coughs> we, did, we did go into... Uh, recited in said liturgies and other Latinizations too, to make it the, we retain the the text of the liturgy, but try to make it look outwardly more, more Latin mm-hmm. as for example, the ringing of the bells during the anaphora and a, a number of, number of things. It seems that the Eastern church, however, 
never abandoned their idea of con celebration for some reason. They they sometimes read liturgies rather than rather than saying them, mm-hmm. but they never quite quite completely abandoned the idea of con celebration. So, yeah, they there was there is a lot of Latinizations, and they were very particularly chosen, and I think they were chosen for sociological reasons mm-hmm. that they felt that the culture of the Latin the culture of the Western Europe was superior to the East, and therefore to lift ourselves up, we had to look we had to look more like the Latin Church, although certainly many Eastern practices were always maintained. Uh, this this could be this would be a uh, university course in itself is <laughs> you know what was chosen, what was not chosen. Sure. Why did why why were certain things happen and why did not other things happen, and so forth. But the Latinization was certainly a sociological attempt to look more like the Roman Church. Mm-hmm. That that is what had happened. Uh, there was a there has always been a movement in the Eastern Church. To return to, we'll say, Eastern authenticity. Mm-hmm. It was very weak in the 18th century, became a little bit stronger in the 19th century, which actually led to some parts of the Eastern Catholic Church returning to Orthodoxy. Yes, unfortunately. And in the 20th century, it became very, very strong and was kind of blessed by the Vatican Council, so that since the Vatican Council, the return to Eastern customs has been pretty general, I would say. You know, uh, we still have, in fact, some Latinizations. I be, be tedious to go into the details because they're they are mostly details now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there still are some Latinizations, but I would say that in general, we have returned to a very authentic Eastern celebration of the liturgy. Now, uh, one of the things we, we didn't really talk about, and we were just kind of going into the Eastern worship, um, but I'm going to kind of hint at that for maybe a future uh, future episode, and definitely something we'll cover uh, if you join us for studying the uh, the Catechism in a Year series. One of uh, one of those Latinizations that really affected the East um, that uh, I highlighted in the the work that you helped me write at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary was the um, the separation of the sacraments of initiation, where yeah. um, chrismation, or chrismation, which is uh, Latin Catholics call it a confirmation, where the, the sacraments of, of chrismation and First Communion uh, were no longer ad- administered to children, uh, which had been the almost universal practice East and West, um, up until parts of the tenth, twelfth, I've heard even in parts of uh, parts of South America from one um, one Spanish family I know talking about um, children being given uh, communion in in uh, a part of Mexico, you know, around the turn of the nineteenth century. Um, but that being, you know, a lot of people think it's just Latinization is about liturgical aspects, but there are other challenges. Um, to our Eastern churches beyond just um, the externals. And I really don't like that word beyond just uh, the, the, the texts of the, the liturgy being replaced with the text of the mass or beyond the vestments or beyond uh, the architecture or the imagery. There are whole other aspects of our beautiful tradition of law, of synodal structure, of, um, the administration of the sacraments, something even as beautiful in our Ukrainian tradition as seven priests uh, in ideal circumstances celebrating the sacrament of anointing um, and various aspects of that that are you know unique to our liturgical tradition. Um, what If I could ask one, one final question, um, one of the things that is often very, con- very confused and you really helped clarify in, in one of our classes years ago is this distinction between a rite and a church. And a lot of people will say, oh, you're Eastern rite Catholics, or you're, this is a Byzantine rite. But um, isn't it more proper to say that we're a church 
that uses a liturgical ritual, but we're not just a rite. Like our primary identity is not liturgy. It's our Episcopal um, successors tracing back to their particular apostolic successors. Could you clarify that distinction between rite and church for, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, church church is the whole the whole life of a community. So it would involve not only the, the ritual, but also the laws that govern the community. Mm-hmm. It, it regards the um, the community uh, where and when the community gathers. It regards who is the authority in the community. It regards even the different theological systems of a community. All of this diversity occurs. And so a church is really one church that is united under one leadership, say a, a patriarch or a, an archbishop, mm-hmm. and, and forms one Eucharistic community. Uh, they are not divided from the other communities, but let us say they they have an affinity with one another in in all of the aspects of of being Christian, mm-hmm. you know, theology, law, liturgy, and so forth. So it is a church certainly that would would practice a certain liturgical tradition. Another liturgical tradition would be the right, so and that would be that would be the difference. Uh, uh, what it, another way of saying it would be that. Our connection to Christ is twofold. Our connection to Christ um, is both uh, with him immediately and directly through the sacraments and the celebration of worship, but it is also immediate, though indirect, through our connection with our bishop, who has that line of authority back to the apostles. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's, that's really part of the problem of between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. I mean, both churches recognize, for example, that in the Catholic Church, when you celebrate the liturgy, the body and blood of Christ are really present. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic Church recognizes that in the Orthodox Church, when you celebrate the liturgy, the true body and blood of Christ are present. Mm-hmm. Both recognize that, but yet they cannot communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. That that's a, that's an anomaly, to be sure. <laughs> I think the anomaly comes from, of course, the uh, juris, jurisdictional reality of belonging to, to to different bishops or belonging to a different community. And you know, and one of the hallmarks, uh, just summing up this last question here uh, that we this last discussion point, you know, what is Latinization and Eastern liturgical renewal that Vatican II talked about. You know, one of the hallmarks of of Vatican II Council, uh, especially in talking about the Eastern churches, you know, was to emphasize this um, sometimes neglected principle of the Catholic faith, which is uh, unity and diversity, um, that we can all be uh, members of the one church and all be in union, um, and the fact that we have different ecclesial traditions or legal traditions or worshiping traditions, um, as long as they don't conflict with, you know, what Christ gave to the apostles to, to preserve until he came again, that we can still be one. And that restoration in our own particular churches is supposed to be, you know, a symbol of that, that sign of contradiction that um, you had talked about during the, the times of the reunion of many of the Eastern Catholic churches where um, the, 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 the Latin Catholics looked at the Eastern Catholics and said, well, you're not like us. And the Orthodox looked at the Eastern Catholics and said, well, you're not like us. So you're really not part of either one of the communities. But we, we, we have that responsibility and that unique mission in a certain sense um, to prove uh, that um, – that there is this beautiful diversity that God accepts and expects um, within within His um, covenantal family. Yeah, I think I think that happened in the late Middle Ages, the 15th century. So the Council from the Council of Florence in the 16th century, there began to be 
a, a, a kind of a discovery of the fact that there can be diversity in the Christian churches. There was, it didn't exist before, but then they, they discovered that that could happen. And that was really the basis for the, for the unions. Well, Father David, thank you so much for your time and um, helping kind of answer, you know, these, these five, you know, introductory talking points, so to speak of what is Eastern Christian worship. Um, We may, uh, may be able to have you back on um, hopefully either uh, for our catechism series or on my main channel, um, the Ukrainian fire chaplain show. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope uh, all of my listeners, you guys have enjoyed him. He is a phenomenal priest, uh, archpriest, and a phenomenal scholar. Father David, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you.